This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. That song is about a joy that, that transcends circumstances, a, a joy that is found in, in Jesus that is, is greater than anything that we could possibly find in this world. For the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about discovering joy as we walk through the book of Philippians. Philippians is an epistle of joy. You see forms of that, that word. The Greek word for joy is found some 16 times in the four short chapters of the letter to the Philippian church. And it tells us about a, a joy that, that transcends anything that's happening in our lives, any circumstance in our lives. A joy that is found in, in Jesus. We're going to discover that joy over the next five weeks. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Philippians 1 this morning as we get going with this new series. And we're going to look at Philippians 1 and verses 1, uh, 1 through 26 this morning. If you want to take notes, they're provided for you on the back of your, of your bulletin. So you can follow along. But let's look this morning um, at chapter 1 of Philippians, and we'll walk through verse 26 today, as you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy, for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, the others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? 
Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know that this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and the help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful letter that you gave to the Apostle Paul, which tells us how to live a life of joy based not on circumstances around us, but based on the reality of Christ in us, who, who never changes, who is a, a, a well of goodness and joy that never runs dry. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit now that, that you, you would make your word just open up for us that we would catch a fresh glimpse of who you are and your great love for us that we might find our joy in you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Recently I read um, Rick Atkinson's book, An Army at Dawn, won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago and it tells the story of, of how early in World War II that the American army came together, they were, when, when World War II first started, we were not ready to, to, to go to war, and, and our, our, our military was lagging behind, and, and an army at dawn tells a story of, of how, how we came together, how, how that army came together and, 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 and went off to North Africa first and, and won a victory there, but that happened through so much adversity. Uh, throw so many setbacks along the way, so many mistakes along the way, but, but they, 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 they coalesced, they came together and, and became the army that would eventually triumph. I'm reading Ian Toll's uh, book, uh, The Conquering Tide, which tells a similar story about the American Navy and how after the debacle at, at Pearl Harbor that our, our, our Navy came together and, and, and again, through, through adversity, through setback, through a lot of pain, they, they came together, they coalesced and became the Navy that would win the war in the Pacific. Those are origin stories. They're, they're, telling, they're telling an inspiring story about how, how a group came together in the beginning to become the group that would eventually triumph. Today, before we we dig into the text of Philippians, I want us to look at the very inspiring origin story of the church at Philippi. 
Let's turn to Acts chapter 16. Turn your Bibles to the 16th chapter of Acts. And, and here we see the origin story of the church at Philippi. What, what lies behind the letter that we're going to be studying over the next five weeks? Who were these? What was this group of people? How did they come together? How did God work in their midst at the very beginning? Let's take a look at the 16th chapter of Acts, which tells, tells that story. Look, first of all, in Acts 16 at verses 6 and 7. It says of, of Paul and the other missionaries that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, this is fascinating, right? Because you've got two instances here where the Holy Spirit says no. The Holy Spirit gives them a red light. He tells them, I don't want you to go into Bithynia. I don't want you to go into Asia. And so the Spirit, in both of those circumstances, uh, tells them, no, that's not where I want you to go. So why does the Holy Spirit give them a no? Because God was going to give them a yes about something else, about Macedonia. Look at verses 9 and 10. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's the answer to why the Spirit says no in verses 6 and 7, because God was going to say yes to Macedonia, which incidentally is the first time that the gospel was penetrating into the continent of Europe. Macedonia was, was Europe. Now, this kind of thing happens in our lives as well. I mean, you may be here today and, and you've experienced a door closing in some area of your life in recent days. And maybe you're trying to make sense of it. God, what are you, what are you doing? Because there's, there's been, a, there's been a, a closed door. Well, you can, you can better be sure that when God closes a door... He's preparing to open the right door for you. You just need to wait on the Lord and trust in him. God closed the doors to Asia and Bithynia because God's plan, which is always best, was to open a door for them to go to Macedonia with the gospel. Macedonia was where Philippi was. And so at this point, um, Paul has this vision. They set out for Macedonia. They come to Philippi, which is one of the leading cities of Macedonia. And typically, when, when Paul and these missionaries would go into a new city, the first place that they would go and, and preach the gospel was a synagogue. But see, Philippi was so heavily Gentile 
that there weren't even enough Jewish people in Philippi to form a quorum for a synagogue. And so they hear that there are some people who, who worship the one true God who gather for prayer down by a river. And so instead of going to the synagogue, they go down to the river to, to talk to the people who are there. And one of the people who is down by the river that day is a woman named Lydia who is going to become a central character in the story of the church at Philippi. Let's meet Lydia in verses 14 and, and 15. A God-fearing woman named Lydia. And when it refers to Lydia as a God-fearing woman, it's, it's referring there to a, a, a Gentile who has come to worship the one true God of, of, of Israel, right? So that's, that's what this is a reference to. Lydia, Lydia is a Gentile, but she has, has kind of, she's come to worship the one true, true God. Um, and so it says in verse 14, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now what a picture here of the way that our great God works. First of all, what a picture of, of, of how he works in evangelism in his sovereignty and also with human responsibility. You see both of these things here. First of all, we are responsible to share the gospel. So what does Paul do? Goes down to these people by the river and he speaks the gospel. Speaks the good news about Jesus. That's our responsibility. Our, that's God's calling on every believer to, to share the gospel. And you see that Lydia responds to the gospel, but who enables her to respond? It says the Spirit, the Lord, opened her heart to respond to the gospel. We, can't, we won't respond to the gospel on our own. If we respond positively to the gospel, it's because the Spirit opens our hearts. That's God's sovereignty in our salvation. So we see both of those things at work here. Notice also that after the Spirit opens Lydia's heart, that Lydia opens her home to these missionaries. She's a businesswoman. Says so she's a, a dealer and, uh, and, and cloth. Uh, she's, she's a person of, of financial means. And so she knows that these missionaries need a place to stay. They need a base of operations in Philippi. All the churches at that point met in houses, and so she's got a house that's large enough to accommodate this, this new church that will meet in her home. And so the Lord opens her, her heart and Lydia opens her home to be a base of operations for the gospel in, in, in Philippi. That's a beautiful story of how the Spirit of God works. And, and, and listen, if, if God has blessed us financially as he had Lydia, God has blessed us financially not to just hoard what, what he's given us and just kind of build bigger barns like the guy in the parable that Jesus told about, 
but to, to, to use those resources to, to leverage those things for the advance of the gospel. And so Lydia does that immediately as a new believer. So at this point, the ministry begins to take place in the city of Philippi. And they're beginning to share the gospel and the church is beginning to form. But you can better believe that whenever the Lord is at work, Satan is also going to be at work. And so Satan begins to attack this, this, this fledgling church. And so what happens is that there's a, there's a slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And this demonic power enables her to tell fortunes and so she's kind of like a you know a, a demonic uh, medium fortune teller uh, type of person uh, it's, it's it's demonic power that's enabling her to do this well she is is following paul and the other missionaries around she's shouting incoherently and so one day paul just turns around and in the name of jesus he he casts the demon out of this this poor girl and so the demonic power is gone She's not engaging in fortune-telling anymore, but what that also means is that she's not making money through her fortune-telling for her owners. And so now, this girl's owners are furious with Paul and the other missionaries. They start a riot in the city of Philippi. They, they have Paul and the other missionaries uh, beaten with rods brutally and thrown into jail. Well, what happens in jail. Around midnight, Paul and the other missionaries are singing praises to God. God sends an, an earthquake. The jail is shaken. Uh, chains, their chains fall off. The doors of the jail fly open. The Philippian jailer thinks that the prisoners are going to escape, and he knows that's going to mean death for him anyway, so he's about to take his own life, but Paul and the other missionaries say, no, don't, don't do that. So rather than taking the opportunity to escape, Paul and the missionaries share, take the opportunity to share the gospel with this Philippian jailer, and he comes to Christ and becomes a part of this, this local family of God in the city of, of Philippi. It's an amazing story. Look at verse 40 at the end of, of, of chapter 16. Uh, it says, After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. And so the very next day, after, after the, that night in jail, the very next day in order to prevent more civil unrest in Philippi, Paul and the other missionaries depart from Philippi. It must have been a tearful goodbye. And so now, what's happening is that Paul is writing a letter to this church, to this family of brothers and sisters that had formed in the city of Philippi. So what do we see here in this opening chapter of Philippians? It's, it's, they're writing to these, these brothers and sisters who have really become like family to them. A church is a family, a family of brothers and sisters. So what do we see here about the, the family, the family of God 
First, the first principle we see is this, affection for the family. Affection for the family. Let's look at Philippians 1 and verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Look down at verse 8. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, these verses just ooze with affection, don't they? Scholars believe that, 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 that Paul's ministry in Philippi only lasted for about three months. You know, but, but during these, those, those 90 days, this group of believers just, be, just became like a family to one another. They, they, saw, they, they saw beautiful things happen. You know, people like Lydia and the Philippian jailer and, and others were coming to Christ and God had given them new life and so people were being saved and there was, there was great joy, but they, they were also dealing with great adversity. You know, the same people that started the riot and that, that beat Paul and the other missionaries so brutally, those persecutors were still there. And so the, this, this, these new believers were being intensely persecuted for their faith. They were going through all kinds of pain and trials and adversity. And so um, Paul, as he, as he looks back, as he writes to these people, he's writing to a He's writing to a family that he loves, a church family that he loves. And during their three months together, they had shared in so much. They had been through so much together, and, and God had knit their hearts together. The series Band of Brothers is my favorite TV series of all time. I watch Band of Brothers at least every couple of years because the acting and the writing is, is so good and the story is so powerful. It, it, it follows, it follows the, the, the story of, of, of Easy Company, who is there. Uh, it's, a, it's a group of, of guys in, in the Airborne, and it, and it takes them all the way through boot camp, through the end of World War, through, World War II, through, through D-Day and all the fighting after D-Day to the end of the war. And you just see in Band of Brothers how through all the, the, the pain and adversity uh, and just kind of that, that, that being bonded together through that experience that, that they're, 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 knit, they're knit together as a unit. And it's, it's incredibly powerful and at the end of band of brothers uh, one of the one of the soldiers uh, carwood lipton quotes from shakespeare's play henry v from this day to the ending of the world we in it shall be remembered we lucky few we band of brothers for he who today shares his blood with me shall be my brother Th that was the church at Philippi, a band of brothers and sisters who had been through so much together and who, who were there for one another. You know, I see that in our church. I hear testimonies as a pastor from so many of you on, our, on a regular basis about how, you know, you were going through a, a time of 
ad- adversity or loss or, or whatever, and, and I hear testimony after testimony, it was my brothers and sisters in Christ from our church family who were, who were there for me, who were walking, who were walking with me. And the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I see that so much in our church family. It is such a, a blessing. And that was, that was the church at, at Philippi. Look at verse 5 uh, here in chapter 1. He talks about our partnership in the gospel. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So this is the Greek word koinonia. We, a lot of times it's translated as, as fellowship. D.A. Carson says this about, about that, that word. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. So fellowship is a lot more than just hanging out together and, and, and having, you know, having food together. That's a part of fellowship. That's a great part of fellowship. But that's not all fellowship is about. That, that, that biblical word um, is, is about, it's about self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. In other words, we've been brought together. We're bonded together because we've been brought together by the gospel. And so fellowship is about also rolling up our sleeves and, and getting after it in that shared vision, right? Being willing to sacrifice as we, as we move toward that. To sacrifice, to give of our time, our talents, our treasure you know, for that shared vision. So we see here in these opening verses the tremendous affection for these people, affection for the, the, the family. The second thing that we see here in chapter one is God's faithfulness to the family. God's faithfulness to the family. Let's look at verse six. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, we all know what it's like to start projects that we don't complete. <laughs> we might can look around our house or, you know, look out in the garage or whatever, and we can see different things that, projects that we started that we haven't completed yet. I can look on my bookshelves and I can, I can see a lot of books that I've read, but I can also look and I can see some books that I, I started but did not finish. And you know what? That's, a, that's okay. I had a long time ago, I had some, some older, wiser pastors uh, who, who gave me the counsel, look, you know, you, you read in order to keep your heart on fire for the Lord. And if you start a book and you feel like the Spirit is saying this is not exactly what you need at the moment, it's perfectly okay to put that down and, you know, and move on to, to something else. That's, that's fine. But listen, God always, always finishes the projects that he starts. And especially the project that he started in our lives the day that he saved us. The day that he saved you, God began a good work in your life. And he is going to carry that good work on to completion until the day of Christ. The one who started a good work in you is not going to let go of you now. Jesus says in John 10, 
and verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, as a dad of three, I've spent a lot of my life holding little hands. And I loved holding their hands when they were little. I loved just taking walks with them and holding their hands. But when we were doing things like, you know, crossing a busy street in New York or, you know, jumping waves down at the beach, we would hold hands a bit tighter. And their little hands would be holding on to mine tighter. But that's not really what made the difference. What made the difference is that my hand (laughs) was holding on to theirs. And they really didn't have anything to worry about because their daddy was not going to let them go. And if that's true of, of loving earthly fathers, then how much truer is it of our heavenly father whose love is perfect? It's his grip that matters on you. He's never going to let go of you. No one will snatch you out of his hand. He's going to complete the good work that he began in your life when he saved you. Now listen, there's a corporate dimension to this as well because Paul's writing to a, a church He's writing to a body of believers, and it's a body of believers who are going through a lot. These people are being persecuted. As the church today is being persecuted, many, many parts of the world. And these believers need to understand, you're going through struggles. They had had friends and family that had abandoned them because of their faith in Christ. But Paul wants them to understand, God's not going to let go of you. God's got his hand on your church. And no matter what adversity that you face, God's grace is going to be unstoppable to his church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is no stopping the church of Jesus Christ because God, again, will preserve them. He has his hand upon them. So there's a corporate dimension to this as well. Now, God's faithfulness was also seen on a very personal level in what the Apostle Paul was going through as he writes the letter to the Philippians. Let's look at verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. What has happened to Paul? He's been thrown in prison. He's writing... Philippians from a Roman prison cell where he's been put because of of preaching the gospel. Philippians is one of four uh, what we call prison epistles that he writes. Uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. They're written from his Roman imprisonment. And so why did they throw Paul in jail? To hinder the advance of the gospel. How was that working out for him? (laughs) What does he say here in verse 12? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. They put him in prison because they wanted to stop the advance of the gospel, but actually his imprisonment has, has, has furthered the advance of the gospel. Well, how did that happen? Verse 13. So that... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in 
Christ. So this is taking place in Rome. Paul is being guarded by Caesar's own elite force of soldiers, the, the imperial guard. And so as they are guarding the apostle Paul, they become aware that this is no ordinary this is not like the guys that we usually guard. You know, Paul is treating them with love and with kindness. And Paul is telling them a story. He's telling them the story of Jesus. And so what happens is that stories begin to circulate about Paul. You know, this, this guy is not a criminal. This, 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 this guy is here because of his, because of his faith. And so stories begin to circulate about Paul among the imperial guard, but, but more than that, the story of Jesus begins to circulate among the imperial guard. And soldiers are coming to Christ, people that are linked to uh, the palace, to, uh, to the, 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 the apparatus of government there in Rome, are coming to Christ. So the gospel is advancing. God is using Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel among unbelievers and believers are becoming even more bold to share the gospel. Because look at verse 14. He says, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Now again, this was not the idea of the pagan authorities when they threw Paul in jail. They, well, they threw him in jail because they, they thought, well, you know what, if we, we'll make an example out of him. We, we're going to throw him in jail for preaching the gospel, and then all these other Christians in Philippi will shut up. But what happened? The other Christians in Philippi became even more bold and more fearless. Why? Because courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. They saw Paul's fearlessness and his willingness to suffer for the gospel and, 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 and the Spirit of God used that to inspire them and to make them more courageous and, and fearless and bold in sharing the gospel. Listen, we, we need more courage in sharing the gospel. Most of us are too timid about sharing the gospel and speaking of Jesus. We need courage to do that. Francis Chan um, tells a story about something that happened to one of the pastors in his church. This pastor was in, in traffic one day and um, he, he witnessed a, a car hitting a bicyclist and, and it, wasn't a hard, it wasn't hard contact. It was enough to, to knock the guy uh, over, but uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't injured. In fact, the bicyclist got up off the ground immediately and went over and, 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 and uh, pounded his fist on the hood of the driver's car and then went over and yanked open the car door and began assaulting the driver of this car who happened to be an, an elderly man. And so the pastor sitting there and just like watching this assault begin to take place and he's thinking, you know, like, what am I, you know, I, I'm a pastor, I don't want to be getting in a fight, you know, with this guy, and to make matters even more complicated, he had one of his little kids in a car seat, in the back seat, and it was just him 
and the little kid in the back seat, which made it even hard. You know, what do, what do I do here? And in a split second, he just made the decision, you know, I, I've got I've to help this elderly man. So he, he gets out of the car, um, and he goes over, and he, and he starts pulling this guy who's making the assault, trying to pull him, pull him uh, away from assaulting this, this elderly man. And then the guy got physical with the pastor and, and you know, was in his effort to get back to, a, to, to the assault, you know, he rips the shirt off the, the, the pastor to try to get back. Well, then the pastor's got to make a split decision. Do I, do I get more physical and attempt to, like, to stop this assault that's taking place? And so with, with one punch, he cold cocks the guy. And the police get there, and they say, how many times did you punch him? He said, well, only once. Um, and uh, that's all it took. Well, Francis Chan told the congregation this story about one of their, their uh, pastors, and they all cheered and everything, not, not so much because of their associate pastor's punching power, uh, but because of his willingness uh, to, to, uh, to, to engage on behalf of this elderly man and stop this assault. And then Francis said to the congregation, he said, well, how many of you would be willing to do that? If you, were, if you saw some kind of an assault taking place on the street, how many of you would be willing to, to, to try to stop that? And, you know, and people were nodding their heads and like, yeah, I would, I, would, I would do something. But then he asked them this. He said, suppose you were in a restaurant and you saw that same elderly man sitting by himself and you, you knew that he was not a Christian, would you have the courage to walk across the room and help him by telling him about Jesus? You see, what, what does the Macedonian man call out to Paul before they go to Philippi? Come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us how? But by telling us about Jesus, the ultimate way that we can help anybody in this world, the ultimate way is to introduce them to the Savior. And it takes courage to get out of our comfort zones and to talk to people about Jesus. But we're called to that. What else do we, do we see here? We see, uh, we see intercession for the, the family of God, intercession for the family. Uh, in verses 9 through 11, Paul stops and prays for the church. Sometimes in his letters, Paul would just stop and just begin to intercede for the church that he's writing to. He does that here in verses 9 through 11. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Fill with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, we could camp on just verses 9 through 11 here all morning. Um, but what do we see here in this prayer for the church? It's a model. It's a great model for the way that we can pray for our church. D.A. Carson says this, how much do such petitions feature in our praying? When was the last time you prayed that the brothers and sisters in your congregation would abound in love more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they might discern the best things and prove them out 
in their own experience being filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. What do you pray for? Thank God that some do pray along these lines. But many of us devote our praying to personal matters largely removed from gospel interest. Physical safety, good health, employment. Doubtless, these and countless other concerns are legitimate subjects for prayer. After all, we serve a God who invites us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. But where is the gospel focus? Our, our, our prayers for our church should not be limited to personal needs and concerns, but, to, but, but also for the advance of the gospel in our, in our midst. That We should be praying the kinds of things that Paul prays here and in other prayers in his letters for the churches. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. These prayers for the churches are sprinkled throughout the letters of Paul and they can be great models that we can use in our own prayers for our church. So we see intercession for the family and then the ultimate purpose of the family. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For Paul, the ultimate concern always in his life was the glory of God. The ultimate purpose in our lives should be that Christ would be lifted up, that Christ would be magnified, that people would see and be able to savor the glory of Christ, that he would be high and lifted up in and through our lives and our lips, the glory of God. And, and Paul was like, if that means going on living for me, I'm surrendered to that. If it means dying, I'm okay with that. He was totally surrendered to the will of God, whether it was life or death. I love what Leonard Ravenhill says about the Apostle Paul. He had no ambitions for himself and so had nothing to be jealous about. He had no reputation, so he had nothing to fight about. He had no possessions and therefore nothing to worry about. He had no rights, so therefore could not suffer wrong. He was already broken, so no one could break him. He was dead, so none could kill him. In fact, Paul says, if they do kill me, what's that going to mean? Gain. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. As Jim Elliott, who went on to be martyred for the Lord in the jungles of Ecuador, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Lord, our heart is that Christ would be glorified in the way that we, we live, in the, in, the, in the way that we die. Lord, whether by life or by death, we, we know that in Christ we cannot lose. We know that for us as believers, dying is only gain. And here on, this, here on this earth, for as long as we live these earthly lives, we have Christ. 
and the joy and the peace and the security that comes from, from knowing him and living for his glory. As we bow before the Lord right now, Paul is saying, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He could say that dying is gain because he knew Christ. He knew where he was going when he died or whenever Christ came. He was, he was ready. Are you ready? Do you know Christ? Are you ready to die? Are you ready for Christ to return if that should happen today? The only way to be ready is, is to know him. And you can know him. Turn to him today. Christ died for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead that we can have eternal life. Turn to him today. Trust him as your Savior and Lord. Receive him into your life as your king. That's the only way to be ready. That's the only way that dying can be gained. As a believer, what is your ultimate purpose in life? Is the ultimate purpose in your life truly the glory of God? Do you, are you surrendered to the point that more than anything else in, life, in your life, that your passion is for Jesus to be lifted up and magnified and known and made more famous in and through your life? That is our ultimate purpose. May it be so in reality in all of our lives. And so Lord, we, we thank you for this life that you have given us to make an impact for you. Lord, we thank you for the, the family of, of God. Um, we thank you for a, a band of brothers and sisters um, that we can join together with, that, that become like family to us. Um, a, a family that, 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 that transcends um, all, all the different things that can separate people in life. But Lord, you have made us uh, one as a, as a family of brothers and sisters. Lord, Lord make, us, make us faithful um, as a family to love one another um, and to love people in this world around us too. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 